Yiftach was the eighth judge, the eighth shofar of the Jewish people. He was involved in a lot of very controversial stories, which we'll, which we'll explore in the podcast. And he became a leader 150 years, approximately 150 years before the building of the first temple, and about 300 years after Yeshua's conquest, bringing the Jewish people into Israel. But before we begin, here's a few questions about the story, for those that know a little bit about it so far. The first question is, who was Yiftach's mother, and was she a prostitute? Additionally, what caused Yiftach to run away from his family and leave Israel at a time when all the Jewish people were living in Israel? Additionally, why was it that so many bad and empty people were, were attracted to Yiftach? He gathered so much support from the, the low-class people. And, of course, the one of the biggest questions is, did Yiftach, in fact, sacrifice his daughter as a living sacrifice, or is that story just metaphoric? Before we answer these questions, we need to first talk about Yiftach's childhood and how his story really began. Yiftach was born to a man by the name of Gilad. Now, it's important to qualify, um, to specify, this wasn't Gilad ben Machi ben Menashe, who lived 300 years earlier. Um, this was a uh, different Gilad. It, it makes a lot of sense that this Gilad, his, Yiftach's father, would have been named after his, ans- his ancestor many times over. Um, but it wasn't the same person. It was a man by the name of Gilad. And what's a little confusing about the story is not only was Yiftach's father the name, had the name Gilad and was a descendant of the original Gilad, the name of the city and province that they lived on the eastern side of the Jordan was also called Gilad. So it's a little bit complicated because Yiftach's father was Gilad. He was a descendant of Gilad and he also lived in the area, the Gilad section of the eastern side of the Jordan. According to many opinions, Yiftach's father Gilad, and Yiftach of course as an extension of that, came from the Shevet Menashe, which makes a lot of sense because Gilad, the, Gilad was, a, was a part of the portion of Menashe. Gilad was a, a grandson of Menashe, a great-grandson of Menashe, which makes, or Yosef, which makes perfect sense that, you know, his descendants would be living in that land. Rashi though says that we don't know, there's a famous Rashi in, in the Gemara, that says we don't know what Shevet um, Yiftach comes from, which is interesting. There's also opinions, or Amban brings an opinion that he comes from Shevet God, which is also very interesting. But most people seem to to say that Yiftach and Gilad, his father, came from the tribe of Menashe. Yiftach was a warrior. In fact, most of the people on the, that side of the Jordan, most of the Menashe family on that side of the Jordan, were extreme warriors, or a family, prestigious family, a very respected family of Jewish warriors, and they purposely went on that side of the yard, on that side of the Jordan, because they wanted to be the first line of defense of the Jewish people against all the enemies on the east. So when Reuven and God said, we have lots of cattle and we'd like to be on the eastern side of the Jordan, Menashe, or half of Menashe said, well, we'd also like to be there because we want to be there to protect the rest of the Jewish people. And we're because we're such great warriors, we'll always be able to be there. And if anyone's going to come and try to attack, let them meet us first. Additionally, Gilad and Yiftach's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, I'm not sure how many times up, was Mocher. And Mocher was the firstborn of Menashe, who was the firstborn of Yosef, who was also the firstborn of Yaakov, of Jacob. So the rule in Jewish law, as we're going to explore shortly, is that the firstborn gets a double portion. Menashe got two portions, one inside Israel proper and one on the eastern side of the, of the Jordan. And Yiftach grew up on that extra portion in the eastern side of the, in eastern side of the Jordan. In today, it's, you know, it's not Israel proper, but it's the, 
it's where Jordan is right now, the country of Jordan is right now. And Machir took the Gilad and took the Bashan and as his own property. Yiftach was, is described in the verse, in the Pasuk, as being the son of a prostitute, the son of a Zoina. And the question is, is that to be taken literally? Was he literally, was his mother actually a prostitute? Or does it mean something else? The Mitzudah Slavis, for example, one of the commentators says his mother was actually a prostitute. And the question is, well, if that's the case, why would Yiftach's father marry a prostitute? His father seemed to be a very respectable person, and his his children would later on become elders among the 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 section of Gilad. So why was it that that he took a prostitute? And the explanation is, he saw this woman and realized that she had incredible potential inside of her to have a, a son who was going to be t- tremendously great. And so he decided to he decided to be with her. There's other opinions, and the, the other opinion says she was absolutely not a prostitute. She was rather a pelagish, a concubine. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? A concubine means someone who gets married. They're exclusively um, assigned to someone, just like you know, in marriage where people are exclusive to each other. The concubine is also, the pelagish is also exclusive to her husband, but she doesn't have the same rights that women who are married traditionally have. She doesn't have kiddushin. She doesn't have the marriage certificate. She doesn't have the kisuva, which is like a... Um, W- um, wife rights, you know, to to have certain um, um, demands within the marriage, and of course, if she's divorced, to also have uh, money when she's when she's sent away. And she was exclusively Yiftach's mother was exclusively um, um, married to Gilad, but she didn't have the regular rights as a as a wife. And because of this. Um, she wasn't a full wife, and therefore people called her a zoina. They said she's like a prostitute because she's not really fully married. But of course, she was fully married. Explained the other rabbis that that they give explanation on who Yiftach's mother was. Other people say that this that Yiftach's mother was an absolute full wife, a regular wife, according to all Torah standards of what a wife needs to have. She was married properly. She had a kasuva that protected her rights fully in place. The reason why she was considered to be a prostitute or a zoina was because she was from a different tribe. And the first generation that moved into Israel, they were instructed to only marry within the tribe. The fear being that if someone got married to someone from a different tribe and the only children they had were daughters, those daughters would inherit their father. Their daughters would then marry someone from a different tribe, as is their right, and then they would take that property, which would have been, for example, Menashe tribal property, and now that property would belong to someone in Yehudon, belong to someone in God, belong to someone in Ruvain, and then the property of that was given to them by Yeshua, by God, would be diluted because now someone from a different tribe owns property within that land. So for the first generation that moved into Israel, the rule was they could only marry within the tribe. And then after that, it became a free-for-all. Anyone can marry to anyone because with anyone's Jewish, you can marry another Jewish person. It wouldn't matter. Wouldn't matter, And no one would be concerned about the fact that the properties would go somewhere else because it was fine. At that point, a generation had passed and now it could go to whoever it was. But this tribe, Menashe, they still considered it to be a massive, you know, uh, a very sad situation if someone married outside the tribe. So they belittled the first wife of Gilad saying, look, She's from a different tribe, and that's she's like a prostitute, which of course was absolutely wrong and absolutely uncalled for. But 
People will talk about her in that way. What's interesting is the Pasuk actually testifies. And it's interesting because there are a few times in, in history where things are unknown and yet the Pasuk comes along and tells us the way it is. The Pasuk testifies that even according to the opinion that says that she actually was a prostitute, in that case, how would we know if he was legitimately a son of his father? If Yiftach was really Gilad's son, in this case, the verse actually comes along, the Torah Hashem comes along and says, Yiftach was the actual son of Gilad. Now, after Yiftach was born, Gilad married another wife. This wife was from his own shevet and this from his own tribe. And this wife, he married her fully according to all all standards of what a of a Jewish woman's expected within the within marriage, full rights and full chupa and full kedushin, etc. And Gilad had more children from the second wife, and then Gilad passed away. And when he passed away, these children began to torment Yiftach. They didn't like him. He was an embarrassment to the family because, you know, his mother came from questionable location. Whatever the case was, whether she was actually a prostitute or whether she was a concubine or whether she was from a different tribe, whatever the case was, the children tormented Yiftach. There was a, there was an inheritance to be had. And not only was Yiftach rightfully, uh, able to get an inheritance, he was actually a firstborn, which meant he was due a double portion of the, of the of his father's property they didn't want to give that to him and so they tormented him and at some point they literally they chased him away and some of the rabbis actually say literally with force and with violence it's Yiftach didn't want to go away and he believed himself to be right but once it started to get so forceful and so violent Yiftach knowing that he was right decided he's going to leave and he ran now the were the brothers actually right according to Torah? Did, did Yiftach, if Yiftach was a son of a prostitute or a concubine, would he actually get a portion? The answer is the brothers that chased Yiftach away were absolutely incorrect according to Torah. Yiftach had a portion. Even a child of a concubine or a prostitute, if they're a real son to their father, doesn't matter who their mother is, they have, uh, they're fully legitimate and they are able to have, uh, they're deserving of a portion of their father's estate. And it doesn't matter how embarrassing th- the situation is, they're fully, they're fully in the right. And Yiftach was fully in the right. And the brothers that, that chased him away, they, they were in the wrong. What's interesting is though they chased them away, they did have a lot of honor towards their father. They didn't actually publicly announce. When, when they made their claims against um, Yiftach saying, you know, you have no right, you said, they said, you're from another woman. They didn't actually say that their father had relations with a prostitute, and that's the reason why. They had a lot of honor towards their father, and they didn't want to shame their father in public, even after his passing. So they said it more subtly, but everyone understood in the context. They believed him to be unfit and non-deserving to get this actual inheritance and at some point when the pressure got too much the he actually he actually he ran away and and like i mentioned before the yonis and abishas abishas actually says that he saw in this woman before he passed away gilad saw in this in this the mother of yiftach the potential that she had and that's the reason why he actually married even though there's so many questionable situations he was able to see gilad was a special man who could see into the future and see the potential within this woman and realize that someone very special is going to be born. In fact, Yiftach was born, and Yiftach, as we're going to mention, was an extremely special person. Yiftach ran from Gilad. And it says, the verse says, when he ran from Gilad, he went to a place called Eretz Toiv, which literally translates as a good land. Now the question is, where is this Eretz Toiv? We don't know any location in Israel called Eretz Toiv. And it, the rabbis have a great discussion about it. Where is this Eretz Tov? Or what is this Eretz Tov? 
or as we're going to see in a moment, who is Eretz Taif? So one opinion says, this was a city that was ruled and owned by a man by the name of Taif. And that's actually a very popular opinion. Many of the rabbis that bring this down actually say, it wasn't a location, but it was actually a person. Yiftach found a man whose name was Taif, and he had a massive um, area, and Yiftach realized that's a good place to run away. He'd be safe there from his family, and he... He lived in this area but called the land of Toiv because the owner of that massive area was called Toiv. Another place, another opinion says it was actually a location, it was a place, it was a city called Toiv, and this is the location where Yiftach ran away to. Rabbi Shulban Levi brings down, he says, why was it called Eretz Toiv? It was called Eretz Toiv because it was a land that was exempt from Misa. It was a land where you didn't have to bring um, tithes from. Now, in Israel, you have to bring tithes. So that's a clear indication that the location wasn't in Israel. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Why we've never heard of the place called Eretz Toiv? Because it's not in Israel. It's a location outside of Israel. Yiftach was so concerned and worried about his family, he literally ran out of Israel and... He went to a place called uh, the Good Land, or a land of, of, of Toiv, and he escaped out of Israel itself, Israel proper. In fact, many years later, we see this Eretz Toiv, we see it come up in history. David Hamela, King David, this is many, many years later, he, he had a war with Amun, and Amun was getting concerned about this war. They knew that King David was a, was a warrior to be, to be, um, fearful of, and so they, hired mercenaries from different locations. And one of the places that Amun hired, they hired 12,000 mercenaries from a place called from Ishtoiv to help fight. So the rabbis say, you look at that. There's a place outside Israel, maybe even near Amun, which would, which makes perfect sense in the context of the story as it's going to unfold. And this this place exists, and we have literally indication of it. A hundred years later, King David had to contend with these mercenaries. Of course, he, he beat them in war, and he said, Yoyav, and they, beat, they, they won the war, etc. But we see this location, this place called um, Ishtoiv, Eretz Toiv, we see, we see this location outside of Israel called Good. Now the question is, why is it called a good land if it's outside of Israel? Isn't Israel the epitome of goodness? Why are we calling a land a, a good land if it's outside of Israel? And there's a beautiful explanation. They say, had it been in Israel, you would never have called the land good. Because all of Israel is good. So calling, saying, this particular land in Israel is good, well, that's ridiculous. Every inch of, every centimeter of the land, every blade of grass is good. So you would never point to one particular place and say, oh, this is good in Israel. So the fact that the place is called good is an indication it's not in Israel, and it happened to be a very fertile land, and compared to the rest of the world, which isn't all good, this one was good. It was goodish. It, it had some goodness there, and therefore it was called a good land, because compared to the rest of the diaspora, the rest of outside of Israel, this had a little bit of goodness in there. But this is a clear indication, say the rabbis, that the place he went to wasn't inside Israel, because we would have never labeled a place in Israel good, because of course it's good. Every place is good. Another opinion... Just uh, you know, for a little, a little of, of broadening, broadening the scope a little bit to, to see the different opinions of where Yiftach ran away to. Well, another opinion says that it was owned by a man called Toiv, and they actually bring up the story of Boyaz, who was alive at the time. Ibsen was alive at the time, and he had the incredible story with Rus. And in the story of Rus, Boyaz tells Rus, "I'd love to marry you," which, by the way, he did eventually. But he said, first, there's a man by the name of Toiv, and he's a closer relative to your ex-husband than than I am." First, you need to, I need to get permission from him to make sure he doesn't actually want to marry you. And if he doesn't want to marry you, this man called Toiv, well, then I'll marry you. 
Now the other man didn't want to marry. This man called Taif didn't want to marry um, Rus. And Boyaz ended up marrying Rus. And they had a son who became the grandfather of King David. And that's an incredible story of its own. But we see again this man called Taif. And some people say this, this is the same Taif. That's where Yiftach ran away to. He ran away to this man called Taif. One interesting thing is, the, the land is called Eretz Taif. And the rabbis point out, it's not called Eretz Toiva. The land that's good, with a hay at the end, it's just called toiv, tesvav base. And they say good with a hay, with Hashem's name, the shechina, the hay represents a shechina, that could only be in Israel. Good, yeah, there's plenty of good places, but goodness with the shechina of Hashem, with Hashem's divine presence, Hashem's revealed godliness, that could only be in Israel. So when Yiftach left Israel to run away to a good location to place with you know fertile lands or a good location or a man whatever the case was all the to whatever the opinions were it was always it was always it was a place that was good but it wasn't good like Israel's good with Hashem's presence it was a place that that wasn't like that and when Yiftach left he attra- says the verse he attracted a whole bunch of what's described as empty people and they joined him they left Israel or they left wherever they were, and they came to this Eretz Tov with them, and they joined Yiftach, and it says it's a little bit uh, uncomfortable, but Yiftach made himself a mercenary for hire. People would hire, hire Yiftach and hire his crew, these empty men, and they would go and they would attack people, and they were very successful. Yiftach was an exceptional warrior, who was a man of, of, of extreme valor. And people would hire him. It sounds like outside of Israel. And Yiftach didn't care. This was this is how he he paid in order to survive. He needed to make money to to live. And so people would hire him as a mercenary, and he would make his way around, killing people for you know based on you know, who, who would pay his bills to to kill him. And all the people that were with him, they would do the same thing. And that, that's that's what some of the rabbis say he did when he was in the land of Toiv. Now the question is, the people that followed Yiftach, were they, when it says they were empty, they were rakim, what does that exactly mean? So some people say they were empty and foolish. They didn't, they, they had no jobs, they had no money. Um, and they, these were low class people, very, you know, the, the very, very, the plebes, the very bottom of the social rung, and they, they saw something in Yiftach, some goodness in him, and they were like, well, you know, he'll, he'll pay attention to us, he's, he's there for us, and they hung around Yiftach, and they, they were, they were attracted to him. Some people say that the, some rabbis say, no, that, that wasn't the case at all. These people weren't empty. When it says that these were empty people, it doesn't mean they were, they were emotionally, um, and, 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 and ethically deficient or empty, but rather they were penniless. These are people that were that were on the streets. They weren't bad people per se. They just were on the streets. They had nowhere to live. And they heard this Yiftach guy. This Yiftach guy was making a business of of you know mercenary for high. And they said, yeah, well, he'll, he'll let us join. And Yiftach was a nice guy. Let them join. And so these people, they weren't bad people or empty people, but they, they, they had nowhere to live. They had no money. And they saw an opportunity to support themselves. So they joined Yiftach. Other opinions say, and I guess this is more similar to the first opinion as well, is that they saw Yiftach leaving Israel, and they said, well, look at that. He's probably leaving Israel because he doesn't like the strict Torah lifestyle. And they said, well, we don't either like the strict Torah lifestyle. So they, they assumed that Yiftach was, had their mo- motivation. Yiftach, Mino, as we're going to mention, was an extremely moral and upstanding person. But in the case of in the case of these people, they misunderstood Yiftach's motivation, and so they followed after Yiftach, thinking that they, that Yiftach was like them. Meanwhile, they were empty people, but Yiftach very much wasn't. In fact, the the Gemara brings that, and the Gemara says a bad date, pa- date 
a bad date palm will go to be with the thorn bushes. You know, a, a bad tree will attract bad, will attract a bad, uh, a bad tree as well. Like attracts like is the famous expression people use nowadays. These people assume that Yiftach was some bad guy and they said, well, we're, we're not that greatest, we're not the greatest guys either. We'd love to, to hang around Yiftach. And so they went to hang around Yiftach assuming that Yiftach was as empty as them. As we're going to mention, and I guess this is a good time to, to start mentioning, Yiftach was anything but that. Yiftach was a warrior, he was a tzaddik, and he had Ruch HaKadosh. And as we're going to mention later on, he's going to, he's going to even mention things that Moshe Rabbein on the Torah never got to, never mentioned. He's going to mention through Ruach HaKodesh, through divine inspiration, he's going to actually be the one to, to give the Jewish people secrets from the story of Moshe that was never discovered until now. So, Yiftach, as, as, as much as people read into the story, very much incorrectly, portraying Yiftach as an empty person himself, Yiftach was an exceptionally deep person. And as we're going to mention later on, Yiftach, though he may have not been the greatest of the judges to lead the Jewish people during that period of the judges, and according to some opinions, he was even the, the lowest in caliber of all the judges, he was an exceptionally righteous man. All the judges had to be exceptionally righteous and exceptionally um, um, honorable and exceptionally connected to God. Yiftach, like all the rest of the judges, was an extremely, extremely righteous man. Now, some people say the Chidah actually writes this down because in two different locations. He says that, that Yiftach was, a, uh, was, a, was an exceptional warrior, he, but when his brothers fought with him, he refused to get into a fight. And he, purpo- he purposely left Israel so as not to be... Not to be um, forced to go to Shiloh. He said, if I escape to another location in Israel, let's say I go to the very north of Israel, I'll go to the west-north side, or all the way in the south, in Yehuda and Shimon section, then I'll be far away from the family who are trying to persecute me. But he said, what's going to happen? It's going to come to Yom Tov, it's going to come to, you know, the three festivals where every Jewish person has to go to Shiloh, has to go to the Mishkan to bring their sacrifices, or I'm going to have property and then have produce, and I'm going to have to take some of my produce and bring it to Shiloh and eat it where the Mishkan was in Shiloh, and eat it in the presence of God, if I go there, I'm going to bump into the rest of the family, and it's going to be a, a very uncomfortable situation. And Yiftach wanted so badly to avoid conflict that he said, I'd rather leave Israel and leave all the holiness that's connected with Israel so long as I don't have to get into conflict, so long as I don't have to, I'm able to avoid getting into 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 um, contentious contentious situations, he said, "I'd rather leave Israel entirely and not not invo- not involve myself in in fighting." And it shows you again Yiftach's incredible character, how how upstanding of a person he was. At the time of Yiftach, now let's just like, take a little bit of a step back to understand the the, the global context of what was going on at the time. Yoy Hagiladi was the leader of the Jewish people, an exceptionally righteous man with uh, not much of a story. We don't know much about him, which usually means that he had a very successful leadership. But once he passed away, the Jewish people, like unfortunately many of the leaders of that time, they were inspired during the times of the leader. When the leader would pass away, the inspiration left. So after the previous leader passed away, after 20 years of successful leadership in the year 2779 from creation, the Jewish people started turning towards idol worship again. But this was different. Until now, they had gone towards idol worship, and they had served, and they had done dreadful things. Remember, a lot of history has already gone by. It's a long time since the Jewish people have entered the land of Israel. They've done many idol-worshipping phases between their leaders, but this was different. Until now, 
they'd always served idols. When they'd, when they'd served idols, when they were leadership, when they're leaderless, they served idols, but they always served it alongside with Hashem. They were like, you know, the idol's really great, and the idol's really wonderful, and we'll serve God, and we'll serve the idol again. But this time, not only did they adopt all the previous idols that they had had in the seven, let's call it seven previous bad stages of, of their history, but this time they also decided, we're, we're done serving God. We're only going to serve idols, and we're exclusively going to serve idols. In fact, the Pesukim, the verses literally bring down seven different types of idols that they serve. But the important part is, well, I guess, well, that's, that's really important. But what made it matters even worse was the fact that at the same time as serving all these idols, they refused to even serve God at the same time. The seven idols were Baal and Ashtaris, the gods of Aram, the gods of Siddha, and the gods of Moab, the gods of the son of Amin, we'll talk about them in a minute, and the gods of the Plishtim. And again, this is where the Plishtim start getting into the, into the, into the fight. The Plishtim were going to become a much more stronger um, force to be reckoned with as after the story of Yiftach, once the story of Shimshon begins. But already, already at this point, you already start to see hints that the Plishtim are going to become an enemy that the Jewish people are going to have to contend with in a, in a really, in a real way. And unfortunately, the story of Shimshon and then the story of King Saul and the story of King David is going to really bring that to light. But at this point, they're now serving the idols of all the different, um, nations that all surround them they're adopting it all but what made it so much worse than all the previous times the jewish people had served idols because it wasn't the first time in history they'd done that every time they were leaderless they did this they also didn't serve god and that made it so much worse in fact hashem said maybe lots brings it down that hashem said even a lupin bin a bean a lupine bean is a very very bitter it's it's a really not tasty bean but if you cook it seven times it becomes sweet and it's actually edible and Hashem said, look at the Jewish people right now. They're serving all these seven idols and they're not even serving me as well at the same time. They want, don't want to even add a little bit of sweetness to all the terrible bitterness of serving all the idol worship that was going on at that time. And Hashem was extremely angry at the Jewish people. And another explanation, and again, we, we, we touched upon it a bit, but just to dwell upon it a touch more, every time the, the Jewish people had sinned when they lost a leader, they, they adopted one more god. So now they were, served, they were serving seven gods because they just lost their previous leader. Yari Hagilani had just passed away. Now they were up to the eighth leader. Yiftach hadn't officially become the leader of the Jewish people and they had this, this zone, this time period where they were just leaderless. So now they had seven gods that they were dealing with and they were led astray all over again. But this time with seven idol worships to, to bow down to. And Hashem became angry at the Jewish people. The same pattern. The Jewish people during this long period of the judges, they would serve idol worship. Hashem would become angry at them. They would do repentance. And then Hashem would send a leader. But this time was a little bit different. It was seven times the Jewish people had done the same circuit. Hashem got angry at the Jewish people and he sold them to the Plishtim and he sold them to the sons of Amun. He sold them to the nation of Amun. But this was the worst period in persecution of Jewish history up to this point. The rabbi Zadar Sofran brings down, it had never gotten this bad. Been, the Jewish people had been persecuted seven times already since the time they moved into Israel, but it had never gotten this bad. The level of persecution that Almain put them through was so absolutely dreadful, it, it, was, it was unlike anything they'd ever seen before. And the rabbis actually point out some, a very interesting phenomena, that usually when a new force, a new enemy comes to attack someone and wants to you know, put their feet over them and, and, and subjugate them, the worst period is the first period. 
you know, if a nation is trying to kind of show that nation that they're trying to subjugate, don't mess around with us. We're serious and we're a real force. They're really, really brutal. They're really, really mean. And then the nation submits. And they fold under the pressure of this up, um, oppressive, oppressive nation. And then the oppressive nation doesn't have to be as strict so long as they get the, you know, they get the, the compliance and so long as they get the taxes and they get whatever requirements they want from the nation they're oppressing. Usually the worst period is the very, very beginning. In the case of Omoin, however, it wasn't like that. It was so brutal and it just, the brutality continued. Amin hated the Jewish people with such an extreme passion. They didn't stop. They didn't like relent and say, okay, well, we'll go. we got what we needed. They just kept on persecuting and kept up brutalizing the Jewish people with a same force and intensity as the very first year when they started attacking them. And for 18 years, the Jewish people suffered with extreme brutality. It initially was just the eastern side of the Jordan, which was right next to the, where the kingdom of Amun was. But at some point, they started moving west. They started moving to Israel proper, actually attacking Yehuda and actually attacking Ephraim and the nations within the Israel proper. And at some point, it, it hit a, a critical mass, and Jewish people realized, okay, we've we've made a mistake. Like all the rest of the times, they said we've sinned against Hashem. We 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 got it. We got to do teshuvah. We got to do repentance. So after 18 years of persecution, the Jewish people cry out to Hashem, and they admit. They say, we God admit that we've sinned against you. The rabbis point out, and as you can see from the response, the rabbis point out they had no intention of changing. But they said it's enough for us to just admit when, you know, we tell God, God, we've done something wrong. Committing to change, well, forget about that. We still like to sell, to serve the idol worships. But they said we're officially committing to change. And, you know, that's the, that, that's our official, our official message that we have for God. So they called out to God, but they, they had no intention of actually, um, of actually changing. Alternatively, some people, some 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 opinions say that they were like challenging God. They were saying, "God, we never left you. We were all, we always served you. You know, we believe that all these idol worships were in between, you know, in between us and Hashem, us and God, and we kind of placed them in between. But we always were were serving you, which of course was was not the fact and was not it wasn't truthful. But this was the official claim of the Jewish people. So Hashem wasn't buying it. Hashem said, listen, you've, you've already said, I'm sorry so many times. This time you're saying sorry again, but you have no intention of actually changing your behavior. So Hashem sent a message. In the verse, it actually doesn't say who the messenger was, who the prophet was, but we do see that God speaks to the Jewish people. And of course, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't Mount Sinai, Har Sinai, where the, God spoke to them all. God sent a prophet. Who was the prophet? The prophet was Pinchas. Pinchas lived an extremely long life. He was alive, of course, during the times of Moses, the, all the amazing stories we have of Pinchas at the end of the 40 years. Pinchas was the son of Elazar, who was the high priest after Aaron, the first high priest, passed away. So after Aaron passed away, his son Elazar, during the lifetime of Moshe, became the high priest. And then when Elazar came into Israel together with Yeshua, he passed away, and his son Pinchas became the high priest. And Pinchas guided and educated the Jewish people for hundreds of years. He was still alive during the story. And God saw the people starting to repent and saying, God, we're, 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 we're so sorry for, for, we've sinned against you, said the Jewish people. Hashem said, well, that's wonderful. You're admitting you sinned against me, but you need to make a change in your life. So Hashem sent Pinchas with a message for the Jewish people. Part, part one of the message was that he's not going to forgive the Jewish people. Unlike all the rest of the times so God said, okay, I'll forgive you. Hashem, Hashem, through by way of the prophet Pinchas, says Hashem is not going to forgive the Jewish people. Part B, Hashem said, 
I've already saved you seven times. Again, you see the number seven coming up many times. They served seven um, idols. They had seven previous leaders. Hashem saved them now from mentioning seven nations, Egypt and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Plishtim and Sidon and Molech and Moin. We don't know who, well, where the story of Moin is, but apparently that was some story that somehow happened within those, three, those, those hundreds of years. And Hashem says, I've already saved you seven times. And then the final third part of the message that Pinchas sent to the Jewish people said, you guys love idols so much, go cry out to your idols. Why are you crying out to God for help? You're being subjugated by 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 a, a evil nation that's terrorizing you. Okay, why are you crying out to God? Cry out to your foreign gods that you claim are so wonderful and so, so um, incredible for your lives. Why are you crying out to God? Now the question is, why did Hashem not accept the Jewish people's repentance? Now we touched upon one of the explanations, but the, there, are, there are more explanations of why in this particular case, unlike all the previous cases where Hashem said, yeah, all right, you said forgiveness, we're good to go, and Hashem sent them a leader, and the leader um, saved, the, saved them from the, the hands of the enemy. This case was a little bit different. One of the explanations that is brought down, Mamlez brings it down, that this situation was almost like the situation called Echter V'ashov. Echter V'ashov means when a person sins, and while they're sinning, they have in mind, it's not such a bad, it's not the end of the world if I sin right now, because I'll just, you know, once a sin is done, let's say, for example, a person wants to, to eat a pig sandwich, and he says, you know, I'll eat the pig sandwich, I'll enjoy it very much, and once it's over, I'll go to God and say, God, I'm really sorry. The rabbis say in such a situation, usually Chuva works, and Chuva is able to break any barrier. But in the case where a person says, I'm going to sin and then do repentance, say, says the Gemara, he doesn't get the opportunity to, to get forgiveness. Because his whole forgiveness that he's trying to accomplish was the reason he sinned. Because had he not had the idea of repentance, he never would have sinned. Says, repentance helped you sin, says God. Okay, in that case, I'm not going to let you have repentance. Any other person, someone can't control themselves, their, their, their impulses are too strong, their, their self-control isn't there, okay, so they have repentance. Even if they repeat the sin a million times, okay, they can't control themselves. But someone that says, I can control myself, but I have repentance, says God, I won't, I won't let it. Because the Jewish people had done this cycle seven times over, it was almost like at this point, they, they said, yeah, we'll just serve idols and we'll tell God I'm sorry. And this God said, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to accept that anymore. That's like, that's like you're, you're doing the sins in order to, to do repentance. An important note, the Alter Rebbe in the third book of the Tanya actually mentions, even in such a situation where a person says, I'll do a sin and then I'll do repentance, God still will forgive them if they come to God with sincerity. They'll still get forgiveness. So what does the Gemara mean that he won't get the opportunity? Usually, when a person does a sin, God helps them. God wants a person to do repentance. Repentance is a beautiful, wonderful experience of a Jew connecting to God. And God loves it so much that so someone does something wrong and God says, I'll help you do repentance. Come here, let me help you out. In the case where a person says, I will do repentance and then I will do a sin and then I'll do repentance, this case God says, you're on your own now. You work out how to do repentance, I'm not helping you out. But if the person actually does repentance, argues the author of the Tanya, if a person actually pushes himself beyond that and is able to do repentance in spite of God not assisting him with a regular assistance, he can still be forgiven and still have repentance. Repentance is this unbreakable, untouchable bond that God always forgives people when they come to him. As you're going to see as the story unfolds, even in the situation where God said, I'm not forgiving you. In the end, the Jewish people do repentance and God says, all right, I'm forgiving you. 
the, 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 the other reason, the second reason why Hashem didn't want to accept their repentance, and this week we, we already touched upon before, is because even in the actual words, the phraseology, they said, we serve gods. God, we sinned because we serve gods. They didn't say we served gods in the past tense. They said we serve in the present tense. And God said, you, you, you plan to keep serving the gods. Tshuva is only effective when you leave the sin. You have to commit part of the tshuva process. In fact, the core of tshuva process is saying, God, I am not in this zone of, of sinning anymore. That's really what tshuva is. They said, yeah, we admit that we did it. That's wonderful to admit what you've done. That's, that's really good, but that's not tshuva. Tshuva means that you are now committing to not do the sin. They hadn't committed that, so God said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to forgive you. And the third reason, again, which we touched upon, was that they claimed that they hadn't left Hashem entirely, but that was the case. They had entirely left God. And God said, well, listen, you're, you're making a claim as if, as if something's the truth, but it isn't. You actually left God. They were serving seven idols, and they were not serving God. So the Jewish people realized that they're going to have to do a real repentance. The persecution was dreadful. They've been, they've been called to task, and they've been called out for being... Uh, the, he, 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 the hypocrisy, and now they realize if they want to do repentance, they're going to have to do this with real sincerity. And so this time they actually came to God. And there were three um, approaches that they took when coming to God with sincerity. Number one, they asked God, they said, listen, we sinned against you, it's true. Why are you making an enemy um, involved in this? Why are you sending Amon to attack us? We sinned against you, not against Amon. If you want to punish us, get rid of the enemy, please. And then do whatever you need to do to us. And then they actually went ahead and they removed their idols. They realized that we, they can't just say, God, I'm sorry, or God, I've sinned, and just keep doing the same uh, behavior. They got rid of the idols. And part number three is they actually began to serve God. A real um, movement of repentance began, a beautiful movement, where you know they tried to like just you know um, do it without any sincerity, and they realized that wasn't going that wasn't going to work. So now they actually began a genuine response, a genuine movement of shuvah of repentance. The Jewish people collectively all got together and they began to serve God. They got rid of all the idols and began to connect to God in a real way. They said, God, if you want to punish us, give us plague, famine, illness, whatever it is, things that we should never know of. But they they ask God, give us something directly. We want a relationship with you. We don't want to have punishments from from the, the nations of the world, from people outside of ourselves. What's really interesting is you see in the order... Of the of of their behavior, they first removed the idols and then they served God. And the Abarbana actually brings it down and it says they first sumeira, they first removed themselves from evil, in the process of connecting to God. David Amalek explains first you remove yourself from evil and then you do good. They did that. That's the order that they did. That that's the order that they employed. And the Abarbana pointed out they first removed the idols and then they began to serve God, which is a, a very effective way of of change. And as soon as the Jewish people did a genuine shiva, you see the most interesting thing. It says, Hashem's soul was grieved with the misery of the Jewish people. God doesn't like punishing the Jewish people. It, it, it hurts God. Our pain is Hashem's pain. When we're in pain, when we're in exile, like we are until Mashiach comes, Hashem is in exile too. When the Jewish people didn't do repentance, well, God said, well, I can't forgive you, and you haven't done repentance. But the second the repentance was activated... In that moment, straight away, God feels this incredible grief for the Jewish people. Now, the rabbis, of course, talk about the fact that it says, his soul was grieved in the misery of the Jewish people. We're talking about God. 
and the rabbis make it abundantly clear, and this is an idea that comes up many times throughout throughout um, Tanakh, throughout Torah, that we don't mean God literally has a soul. God does not have a soul. God has no form of anything. We can't project from ourselves onto God. God is absolutely unlimited and has no form and has no... Uh, has any form of description that we could possibly give to God. But in order for our minds and our, our, our heads to wrap our, ourselves around what was going on, it's, the expression is the Torah speaks in the language of man. It gives us some imagery to deal with. Is that imagery accurate? No, it's not. It's not a representation of the way it is within God because God is absolutely infinite and absolutely not limited to any form of restriction, any form of descriptor, etc., but in order to understand the idea, the Torah employs the language of man. So we understand that Hashem wanted to forgive the Jewish people. So Hashem was grieved with the misery of the Jewish people. It's like it's a descriptor to explain what was going on. But of course, we can't take it literally to say that God has a soul or that God experiences misery. The rabbis point to this particular verse really because you see the imagery very strong here and says, don't get too carried away in the, in the phraseology because of course, you can't say that within God. And so now the Jewish people are all gathered together. Why were they gathered together? Because the Amun, the nation that was persecuting them, decided that they, they want to attack the actual Gilad area, the place where Yiftach had grown up. Yiftach now ran for his life. He's no longer there anymore. And now they're planning a full-scale war against this, this, the provenance of Gilad on the eastern side of the Jordan. And the Jewish people all... They return to God. God has one, one, now wants to save them. And the Jewish people, however, don't have anyone to lead them in battle. And meanwhile, they started hearing rumors about the person that they had chased out. They started hearing that he's a successful warrior. He's going around, a, a, a warrior for hire. People are paying him really good money. And he's extremely successful at battle. And they start thinking to themselves, we need to get Yiftach back into the country and we need to appease him because we chased him out and we were so mean to him. We need, to, we need him to lead the Jewish people. It says that the elders of Gilad came, um, um, left their location. They wanted to go to the, the, the Eretz Tov, to this place where Gilad was hanging out outside of Israel. And it says the elders of Gilad went to, to Yiftach. Their opinions are saying, and we'll talk about this in a moment, that among the elders were Yiftach's brothers. The same people who had persecuted Yiftach so badly, who had terrorized him, who even tried to kill him, those are the same people that came to Yiftach now saying, oh, by the way, we need your help now. Now, why is it that they want, they needed Yiftach? Was there no one else? This is a very, very uncomfortable situation. They now have to ask the man who they chased out, who they treated so harshly and so poorly, so against Torah itself, they now have to need to ask him, by the way, would you like to be our military leader because we need a little bit of help? This is very uncomfortable. So why is it that they picked um, they picked Yiftach. There are many different opinions. I'll, I'll bring a few of them. Um, one is they needed a warrior, and they couldn't find someone on the caliber of Yiftach. Yiftach was now a famous warrior. He was his his feats of bravery were now um, legendary, and they were like, "Well, listen, this is this is this is the leader that we need." Another opinion says people were just too scared. No one wanted to be the leader. Remember, this is a nation that had been persecuted, persecuting and brutalizing the Jewish people in horrific, dreadful ways, killing so much and terrorizing for 18 years. It's a long time. The Jewish people, no one wanted to be that leader. They understood that that's, that's a terrifying position. And they said, well, listen, he's already showing signs of leadership. Maybe he'll be, he'll agree to come. Another reason is that until now, the brothers had always assumed that Yiftach was a, gen, a degenerate. Why? He, he had, he had, uh, you know, his mother was either a harlot or a concubine or, uh, you know, he didn't, he had a lot, they had a lot of reasons to suspect that he didn't have the greatest, um, 
um, character traits. And once they saw how the whole thing unfolded and how much he, he, in order to avoid um, fighting and and to even when he was perfectly right, he had a full share to that inheritance. He had a double share to that inheritance and he left it all behind. They realized he's a man of deep character. They realized, okay, someone as righteous as that, he's the one who we need to lead the Jewish people, which is, that's a, a more beautiful explanation. There's a fourth reason, and this is a little more cynical. They said, we don't want a permanent leader. We're going to appoint someone to be the leader right now to, to, to wage this war against the people of Amun. We're finally fighting back after 18 years. If they win the war, then they're going to become the leader of the Jewish people. We don't need leaders. People, they like the chaos that, 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 that involves of not having the uh, official leader. So they said, we'd rather not have a leader. The best thing we could do is let's invite Yiftah. He's not such a fancy guy. He's very, he's a person we could so easily dispose of once the war is over. He'll be the leader for the war while we need you know, a military leader, someone to stand at the front. And the second the war is over, we'll tell him, yeah, thanks for the help. Goodbye. So the fourth opinion is a, a lot more cynical about it. The mom Les brings it down. And it says, you know, they, they, they didn't really have the best intentions when they, when they went to pick um, Yiftach as leader initially. That was going to change, as we'll mention. But most of the other opinions say, you know, they, they realized they had, they, had, they had misjudged Yiftach. And they realized they, ne- they genuinely needed Yiftach. And the reason they came to Yiftach is to try and make it right. They realized that they, they had done something um, incorrect and they, they wanted to make it right. Or they realized they need now Yiftach's help. And of course, Yiftach wasn't going to make it that easy for them. And Yiftach is going to push back.